It's been my practice on the first Sunday of every new year to bring two messages which I trust will give us some focus and direction for the year that lies ahead. This morning, we were considering what to put on in 2021. The rhyme was purely incidental. And this afternoon, the second thing, keeping the gospel plain and simple. Edward Kimball is a man you may not have heard of, but he was determined to win his Sunday school class to faith in Christ. There was one boy in his class who tended to fall asleep, and so Edward decided to pay him a visit, and the young boy worked in a shop. And he went and saw him, and he confronted that young lad with his need of salvation presented him again with the gospel, urged him to turn to Christ. He left the shop feeling very downcast, convinced that his faltering words had done no good and would make no difference. But that young boy went home, changed, his name, Dwight Moody, became a prominent evangelist in North America in his generation. On the 17th of June, 1873, Moody stepped off a ship in a city called Liverpool. And he'd come here for a series of evangelistic crusades. The meetings didn't go very well at first, but slowly, slowly, the trickle turned into a flood and people came to faith in Christ. During Moody's visit, he went to a Baptist church pastored by one F.B. Mayer. He didn't take to the American at first, but was transformed by Moody's zeal and passion for the gospel. And Mayer was invited back to America to preach and he was preaching at a Bible conference. And at that Bible conference, the life of a man, Wilbur Chapman, was changed. And Chapman became a traveling evangelist. And he enlisted onto his team a man who would also become well-known. His name was Billy Sunday. And his ministry was greatly blessed by God. At one campaign in Charlotte in North Carolina... A group of believers were so challenged by the preaching that they began a prayer meeting, earnestly praying for the salvation of souls, for the conversion of sinners. That's all they prayed about. And in 1934, they invited the evangelist Mordecai Ham, not too many of those in the congregation this afternoon, are there? Mordecai Ham was invited to conduct a citywide crusade. And during that crusade, a man was converted. And his name was Billy Graham. And decades earlier, Edward Kimball was absolutely convinced that his attempts to win that young boy to Christ would result in nothing. 
Maybe you're someone and you lament over your efforts to win someone to Christ. Perhaps even as a church we can become somewhat disillusioned over apparent lack of fruit for our labours. Well, the Lord knows those who are his. And so often you can trace back stories like that. And the, the starting point was just one faithful believer laboring, 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 apparently seeing little or no fruit for those, for those labors, and yet a remarkable chain of events was about to unfold, and they were the start of it. Remarkable how the Lord can work. Of course, the great danger, if we think the gospel isn't producing the results we think it should be producing, the great danger is that we start to meddle with it and tweak it, thinking that we can help it along a little bit. Well, as we stand on the threshold of a new year, I want to encourage you all with the confidence that Paul had in the gospel message that had been entrusted to him. He begins chapter 4, therefore, since we have this ministry, he knew exactly what he was about as a gospel minister. He's just been expounding the wonderful virtues of the gospel. Meditating upon the gospel will always do your soul good. Verse 5 of chapter 3, a sufficiency which is of God himself. Think of the unborn baby in the womb does not have within itself that which it needs to live and grow. But it does live and it does grow because it receives from its mother all that is necessary. It's joined to its mother, receives life spiritually in a similar way. That's you in Christ, receiving from him everything that you need Spiritually, to grow, to live, to make progress, to love, to serve. We have, if you like, a, a spiritual umbilical cord which links us to the Savior. And from him we have this sufficiency. He talks about the new life that we receive by the Spirit of God in verse 6 of chapter 3. And it's not a one-off event in the life of a Christian. It's not just something that you look back on that happened then. It's an ongoing reality. Born again, made alive in him. For me to live is Christ, Paul would say. Such is that spiritual life and his experience of it. And then in verses 7 to 15, as he's contrasting how it was for the, for the Lord's Old Testament people with their, their lack of understanding... The written law of God only brings condemnation and all it does is confirm us in our sin. The law of God just shows us what sinners we are because we could never hope to keep it. Many read that law, but the sin blinds them from the truth that's contained within it. Whereas the Spirit it is who brings this life and opens our eyes to all of those truths causes us to see the sin that, the, that that law highlights and causes us to run to Christ. 
Therefore, he says, on account of all of that, because of these glorious truths, because all of that spiritual blindness has been taken away, we have this ministry, this gospel ministry, so much more glorious than even that work that Moses did in the Old Testament. This is a ministry by which the Holy Spirit acts in the hearts and lives of people. As we have received this mercy, says Paul, because what he's saying is we haven't taken this upon ourselves to do. We haven't earned it. It's because we are the unworthy subjects of God's mercy that we have this ministry. It's because of this work of mercy that God has brought to bear in us. And therefore, we don't lose heart because this is God who's been doing this and is doing it and will continue to do it. Literally, it means we don't faint. We don't grow so, we don't grow so weak as to collapse to the ground as if we're lifeless. We don't give up. We don't give in. We never get to the point where we think this is all a waste of time. This is wonderful news for those of us who sometimes find ourselves feeling weary, feeling as if perhaps all of our labors are worthless, not to lose heart. It's a gospel which keeps our hearts because we remember it is God whose gospel it is, and it is God who is going to do this saving work in the lives of those who hear it. And this remains Paul's primary focus all the way through. And so then when we get to verse 2 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us this three-point guide for persevering in gospel work and witness. This isn't just something for people in full-time ministry. This is for every believer to take hold of these things. As we, and we can do that at the start of a new year. And the first point he makes in verse 2 of chapter 4 is we have renounced the hidden things of shame. Renounce. It literally means to say off, to disown, to refuse. The actual Greek word that Paul used is found nowhere else in the New Testament. It's unique to this particular verse. The sense here is that the apostles have such a high regard and such a high view of the truth of the gospel that it has led them to that position where they will disregard everything else. Anything that in some way might be disguised or ambiguous, anything that might be crafted in some way as to deceive people, all of that has been uh, identified and recognized and put to one side and put out of the way. There was much false teaching in the church and in the, uh, in the regions where Paul was ministering at the times when he was writing these letters. There were many who were false teachers and many of those false teachers were in the position that they were in because of impure motives. They had reasons other than the conversion of souls for doing what they were doing. 
for many, it was seeking to retain a sense of Jewishness and Jewish traditions amongst those who were calling themselves Christians. For some, it was simply the promotion of their own name and reputation. For others, they were probably trying to just line their own pockets. There were others who were promoting their own personal pet theories and stories, which were all wrapped up in the gospel that they preached. So it was a very convoluted message that they were bringing that wasn't just about Christ. There were all kinds of other things mixed in, and you had to take all of these other things at the same time. In all of them, there was something that was lurking beneath the surface of their supposed gospel ministry that just was not right. You'll find none of that in me or the men I'm working with, Paul is saying. We've renounced those hidden things of shame. And where we see those things, we'll point it out to you. We'll identify it for you. We'll warn you about it. Our gospel work is about the gospel and only about the gospel. He says to the Corinthian church in his first letter, I determined not to know anything amongst you except Christ and him crucified. That is it. I just want to tell you about the Lord Jesus and what he's done for you as a sinner. I have nothing else to say. I have nothing else of worth or value to leave with you except that you would know Christ. And that is the gospel that Paul preached. Gospel work is this and this alone. The concern and focus of the church is this above all else. Jesus Christ and him crucified. There are no other agendas to be tacked on or mingled in. In Christ alone, cornerstone we sing. And so it must be. It's the need of Christ that all people have for the forgiveness of their sins. That he died, was buried, raised again the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns forevermore and from where he will one day return in judgment and justice. That in him you might be reconciled to God. You may be made alive in Christ and adopted into God's family. That you can live as a new creation and as a member of his church that you will be saved from the wrath to come, that you will have the certain hope of life everlasting in glory with Christ. This is the gospel. Nothing else. Nothing else must be able to come near it. Nothing must be permitted to come near it or to be said to be necessary or stand alongside it. We renounce the hidden things of shame, Paul says. We keep the gospel pure. And so, he says, secondly, we're not walking in craftiness. They use no sly methods to please men, to trick men, to gain men's applause, to be able to say that they had a following of some sort. Because it's not about following me. It's about people following Christ. In the, in, the, in the proclamation of the gospel, they were open. They were transparent. The truth was laid bare for all to see. 
There was never any secret motive, never any hidden desire for personal gain. They didn't resort to clever ploys or schemes or gimmicks. They were always clear and honest and open in their gospel labours. Paul had no shame in Christ, his cross or his gospel. He had no other message than Christ, his cross and his gospel. And so neither must we. There was never any attempt to remould or repackage the gospel to make it more palatable for people, to make it more pleasant for people. It was never watered down and it was never glitzed up. It was never given a new twist. It was never placed within a fresh narrative. It was just the gospel, plain and simple. They never disguised gospel work. One of the things that I despair of is the way it seems to me that many churches today try to disguise gospel work. So many churches now don't hold holiday Bible clubs. They just hold holiday clubs. Oh, well, you can't mention the word Bible, can you? Well, will you teach the Bible when they get there? Well, yes, we will, but we're not going to tell them. What's the problem? That's craftiness. Be open. Be cl- what are you ashamed of? You're ashamed of the Bible now? Tell them. We're holding a holiday Bible club because we want your children to hear the Bible because the Bible is what they need. And there's all kinds of other examples you, that you'll find like that which are similar. It's craftiness. It's deviousness. There's no need for it. We don't walk in craftiness. We don't send out literature that only mentions the games and the quizzes but doesn't talk about the Bible. The gospel is to be brought to people openly, clearly, plainly, unashamedly. Now you, like me, you may have some reservations about certain aspects of some of the big evangelistic campaigns that used to take place in the last century. But at least they didn't try to hide it behind some kind of facade. At least they were open and clear and honest about what they were doing. And at least the gospel was clearly proclaimed. And many were genuinely brought to faith. My mum and dad lived next door to a lady For over 40 years, and she was saved at the Billy Graham campaign in Haringey in London. And 40 years later, she was still going on with the Lord. Now, there are perhaps a few valid concerns that you could raise about some of the techniques of the Billy Graham organization. But one thing you could never accuse them of was walking in craftiness. Everybody knew what Billy Graham was about. If they went to hear him preach, they knew what they were going to hear. This man's going to tell me about Jesus. And this not walking in craftiness also, we must be sure that it doesn't permeate amongst ourselves within the body of Christ as well, you know. 
In all of our dealings with one another, we're to walk openly and clearly in the light. Everything out in the open with one another. No hidden motives and agendas. No hint of seeking to promote yourself in some way at the expense of others. No pretense or falsehood amongst us within the church. There's no need and there's no place for cunning ploys within the body of Christ. Maneuvering, playing people against one another, all that kind of stuff. There's enough of that in the world. We'll let them get on with it out there, but not within the body. No putting on false appearances, a pretended support, but really it's because you've got some other motive that's going on underneath the surface. No, we renounce the hidden things of shame and we don't walk in craftiness of any sort with anyone. And then thirdly, we don't handle the word of God deceitfully. This can be much more subtle than you might realize. But it's about not falsifying or corrupting or disguising the truth of God and his word. Not trying to mix the truth of the Bible and blend it with human reason and philosophy. Allowing the Bible to be its own interpreter of itself. So you don't have to look outside of the Bible to understand and explain the Bible. If anyone ever says to you, here's something you need to understand about the Bible, and they take you to something outside of the Bible to try and make the point, ignore them. The Bible itself is what we call a self-attesting book. It attests itself, it interprets itself, it explains itself, it is complete in itself. You don't have to look outside of the Bible to prove the Bible. Someone once talked to Spurgeon about, def uh, Spurgeon about defending the Bible. Defend the Bible. He said, I'd rather defend a lion. The Bible needs no defense. And whenever you start to, to walk into those kinds of areas, you'll find yourself walking into quicksand. And what we don't do, which is what so many in the church are trying to do uh, in our modern age, we don't bring the Bible into line with the world. Sinners need to be brought back into line with the Bible. We don't adopt a view or a theory or a narrative and then try to find an, imagin an imaginative way of supporting that from the Bible which will always require you to do things like taking verses out of context, abandoning long-held principles of biblical interpretation. No, you follow the line of biblical theology and allow the Bible to speak for itself, as God himself is doing through his word. And as you see it clearly, plainly revealed in Scripture taking important clues as to how, for one example, how Jesus and the apostles interpret and apply Old Testament prophecy. You follow their example and do like they did. 
It means that we don't just pick out the nice bits, or at least the people, the bits that we think people will find nice. We won't just tell them that Jesus loves them. And if you accept his love, they'll have a better way to live. That's not the gospel. They need to hear of sin. They need to hear of sin's penalty. They need to hear of the awful danger that they're in, in their soul. Of why Christ came, why he died, and how he demonstrated his love at Calvary. They need to hear of repentance and faith and being a follower of Christ and all that that entails. They need to hear of being reconciled to God and of the eternal hope that we have only in Christ Jesus. We start to meddle with the word of God when we speak to people. We're no better than the JWs who walk around with their own version of the Bible, are we? We can't be accusing them of falsifying the word of God if we're doing it ourselves. We need to know how to handle it. So we need to know it. So we need to read it. We need to study it. We need to meditate upon it. We need to love it. We need to delight in it. Is the Bible a delight to you? As you read the New Testament, everything that was important for Christians then is clear, it is plain. And it is repeated over and over again. And all of that stuff is what's important for you too today. And then finally, a fourth point, Paul says, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Making this truth manifest. Letting it be seen and known. An exhibition of the truth. It's as if we've put it up in an exhibition and invited people to come and look at it and see it and examine it. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by stating it just as it is in an undisguised and open manner. A simple exhibition of the truth. Simple statements of things as they are as God's word reveals them to be. And alongside that, as we considered this morning, living lives which are clearly marked out as being gospel people. We speak the truth of the gospel and we live the truth of the gospel. And by means of both, we're seeking to impact others in their conscience. The light of the gospel exposes works of darkness, shows them up for who they really are. When Jesus was brought before Pilate, Pilate couldn't understand what the Jews had against him. What's he done wrong? When Paul was brought before various Roman officials, they struggled to see any wrongdoing that Paul had done that should bring legal accusations against him. What's this man done? Jesus said that by means of your good works, even even unbelievers will have cause to glorify God because their own consciences will tell them 
that what they are witnessing in the lives of Christians is right and good. Your conduct, your attitudes, your manner in your home, in your place of work, at school, at university. Everything about you is to commend you to people's consciences. You're causing them to make decisions about you. Hmm. Something about this person that is right and good. And I know it in here. Are we living lives like that? Will we commit ourselves to live that kind of life before the Lord in 2021? That your life, your testimony, your words, you cause the conscience of others to be pricked when you who are light in the Lord come alongside those who are still in darkness. I have no idea what 2021 has in store for us. I can tell you right now, it's all about virus, lockdowns, vaccines, and independence from the EU. In three months' time, we could all be talking about something completely different. Regardless of any of those things, regardless of how all these things unfold, there is a higher calling that you have as a Christian. What the world needs, regardless of its circumstances, is this. Christian people who, as we thought about this morning, have put on gospel graces and who will share with them the gospel and nothing but the gospel, plain and simple. May we, by God's grace, be those people.